this is Grace Munoz, and I'm reading from Guadalupe Girl. Scars. The grandmothers say that when a cut isn't healed right, it becomes infected, and even if there's later a scar, the skin that lines it will always be frail. Mejor abrir la cortada otra vez y limpiarla bien, darle poquito aire para que esta vez sí se cierre y se sane. That's where it begins, the ceremonial path, when you see your heart, body, and mind scars and decide that you're brave enough to look at them, maybe pry them open again and clean them with mint and lavender so you heal correctly. Some of those scars happened when you were a baby, some while you were in your mother's womb, and some of them even before that. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always más. Welcome to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Our organization was founded in 1998. The radio show started in 2001. We're happy to get through this COVID-19 epidemic together. We're thrilled to bring you another remote installment of the Latino literary renaissance. At the top of the show, you heard the poetry of Gris Munoz reading from her new book, Cotlacui Girl. She joins us for a full interview during the second half of the show, and you will enjoy more of her work throughout the program, broadcasting across the fourth largest city in America and the whole country at 100,000 watts. For the first half of the show, you'll get some intense doses of history as Dr. Cynthia Orozco reads from and discusses her book, No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed. The Rise of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. I know you're tuning in for the music, too. I know I am. Shout out to our crew for curating the soundtrack to a revolution. We pre-recorded this episode to air May 12, 2020, to make history. The Nuestra Palabra radio show is archived at the University of Houston Digital Archives. Our hard copy archives are kept at the Houston Public Library's Special Collections Hispanic Archives. You can listen to Nuestra Palabra On Demand by visiting www.nuestrapalabra.org. Thanks to our crew, Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, Lauri Flores, Stefano Cavasa, Al Castillo. I'm thrilled to join you every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. for Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having to say on the air here on 90.1 FM, KPFT Houston. Also, on Tuesdays from 2 to 3 p.m., we bring you Latino politics and news. I also get to see you on the political talk show, What's Your Point, on Fox 26 Houston, Sundays at 7 a.m. This is Tony Diaz. Stay tuned for more culture, poetry, and music. Quat liquid girl. I pressed my copper mouth against the thin of her eyelid. Delicada, blink, green veined, like folding cricket wings. In the echoing valley, you lay beside me, breasts, stones. I had forgotten Quat liquid girl. There lives the hum of mantis, the macaw in you. Five hundred years later, I remember. Los niños accionan pistolas, las niñas se cuidan solas, no es nada raro, señora. Venimos del rancho del cerro y la loma. Donde cosecha el maíz llama pola. Lárgate de aquí, no te metas con mi gente. No. 
te vas a topar de frente. Lárgate de aquí, no te metas con mi gente. Mira, mira. Ahí va la María, más que linda lista. Se pone en la esquina, vende su mercancía. No quiere ser reina, ni tampoco rica. Solo quiere feria para su y su tía. Aquí brindamos limón tequila. Ando con lo necesario, bailando marimba. Si ya estoy muerta, pero de la risa como Speedy González. Jipa, jipa, jipa. Con la bendición yo ando. Uh. Low life por Sonora anda rifando. Tengo mi entorno conectado, todo controlado. Como siempre ganando. ¿Quiénes son quien controlan la calle? Ja. Corre que no te atrapen. Más bombas tal vez ilegales. Yeah. Con la lata negro mate. Súbele. Wey, ponte la cumbia, chalino, cadete, allá la que truene, súbele, wey, que hoy me duele el corazón, me lo pasaré con pulque si se puede, malos tiempos dejaré que pasen, sí, solo miro para adelante. Rap, 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 mexicano, crema cocinando. This is Dr. Cynthia Orozco, reading from... No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed, The Rise of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. This is from a section called LULAC's Founding, February 1929. Andres de Luna Sr. explained that the Corpus Christi chapter quit the Order Sons because it had resolved to unify all the chapters of our order and to invite some other organizations of identical aims in order to work for the unification of all and form a single organization more solid, which would give more practical results to the development of the noble cause of justice for which we have been fighting. When deliberations began, no one spoke against the merger and admirable decorum was maintained and a remarkable spirit of harmony prevailed. Those speaking in favor of unity included in this order. Alonso Perales of the Valley area. J. Lu Sainz of Valley. Ulalio Marin of Corpus Christi. J. T. Canales of Brownsville and M. C. Gonzalez. Dafoya Sr. of San Antonio attended the event but remained unusually silent and either, either he was not a designated speaker or no one bothered to record his statements. Perales pressed for unity. He said, Never as now will we have a better opportunity of uniting ourselves and in a harmonious union of force and patriotism to claim our rights and prerogatives, which will be the only things that we will bequeath to our children. He ended his speech with the declaration, I vote for unification, to which there was prolonged applause. J. Lou Sines gave a most dramatic speech alluding to his sense of duty as a Mexican-American soldier from World War I. It is now time that we unite, or on the contrary, we shall be lost, and not only we, but what is sadder, our descendants. Separated, we shall be no more than dispersed forces easy to overcome. For centuries, generations of our ancestors lived here watering this land with the sweat of their honest toil, contributing to the development of which today it is so proud. And now, not only in peace, but in war, we have taken up arms in its defense. And when we have returned with the scar or wound or the grief of having left in the fields over there across the sea hundreds of our dead brothers, we have met with the fact that all our forces were lost in the abyss or innocuous racial prejudice, and we continue being the same. Si, 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 do, re, do, si, do, do, la, do, re, mi, re, do, si, re, do, si, la, sol, si, la. Si, si, hipócrita ya, cuenta las cosas atrás. Thank you for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having to say we are joining you remotely to bring you art, literature, and culture. Today we have the pleasure of chatting with Cynthia Orozco via the magic of remote recording. 
She is from Cuero, Texas, the daughter of Mexican immigrants. She is a historian. She's a professor of history and humanities at Eastern New Mexico University, Ruidoso. Orozco earned degrees from the University of Texas at Austin and UCLA. She's the author of Ancient of Change, Adela Slos Vento, Mexican-American Civil Rights Activist and the Texas Feminist. Also, the book we'll be focusing on today, No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed, The Rise of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. She's co-editor of Mexican-Americans in Texas History and pioneer of Mexican-American Civil Rights, Alonso Esperales, forthcoming from Arte Publico Press. She has written over 100 encyclopedia articles, including for the Handbook of Texas, and over 100 articles and letters appearing in newspapers in Texas, California, and New Mexico. She's appeared on C-SPAN, Book TV. Orozco served as campaign manager of the Leo Martinez congressional race in the early 2000s, and Governor Bill Richardson appointed her to the New Mexico Humanities Council. She's currently a board member of Unladylike 2020, a multimedia project celebrating women of the progressive era in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, appearing on PBS in spring 2020. Orozco is a founder of the Chicana Caucus of the National Association for Chicano Studies. As I mentioned earlier, today we'll be focusing on her book, No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed, The Rise of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement, this first fully comprehensive study of the origins of the League of United Latin American Citizens, known as LULAC, and its precursors incorporating race, class, gender, and citizenship, creates a bold new understanding of a pivotal period of activism. This book is vital to filling in the blanks to our history. We want to welcome you to the show and ask you where you're at right now, where you're calling in from, and how you're getting through this COVID-19 lockdown. I'm in Ridoso, New Mexico, and I've been here for over 20 years. Uh, like so many other people, I'm at home and I'm continuing to teach. I teach uh, everything online right now, and uh, it's nice to be home, but uh, it's uh a pretty sad uh, uh, situation right now with the fact that uh, we have so many people who have died, are ill, or who have to work in an environment that is unsafe. So I'm happy uh, to be here with you today. No, we really appreciate that. We're glad that you're able to navigate and adapt to this, this upheaval. At the top of the show, you read an excerpt from your book, Break down what was transpiring. It sounds like you helped document the League aspect of League of United Latin American Citizens. So walk us through all the different elements that were taking place and why those specific actions were important. What we know is that in, say, the year 19 or 20 or so, uh, we had numerous uh, Mexican-American and Mexican immigrants who had fought in World War I. They are returning to Texas, and when they return, they find that the political, economic, and social status of what they at the time would have called La Raza were horrible. In 1920, for example, there would have not been a single Mexican-American in the legislature, in the state legislature. Uh, politically, there was hardly any representation at the mayoral level or also city council, and that was true across the, uh, across the state. Also, the poll tax was in force. You had to pay in order to vote, and that prohibited uh, working class and poor folks from voting. Politically, the status was bad. Economically, uh, we were barely starting to get a Mexican-American middle class Basically, we had people who had stores and small businesses that were largely servicing a Mexican immigrant population. The Mexican Revolution had begun in 1910, and uh, Texas, of course, received numerous uh, Mexican immigrants. Uh, that immigrant population uh, needed services, so therefore we see a rising middle class. Uh, but for the most part, our people were working class community. Our middle class was quite small. 
But the middle class that was emerging uh, was an intelligent middle class uh, who saw that there was a need to organize, uh, who used the resources that they had to do so. Socially, we also see that in this time period in the U.S., the United States was creating what they call and labeled the Mexican problem. And today we have many parallels that we see uh, anti-Mexican sentiment is so common today in the United States, also uh, being vocalized by our president and others. Uh, this anti-Mexican sentiment basically said that uh, the Mexican people, and they included both Mexican-Americans and immigrants, were an inferior people. They were people who had disease. They were a group of people who did not want to learn English. Uh, they were rapists. They were thieves. So we see very common themes that we hear about today when people are talking about immigrants today. So therefore, around 1920 in San Antonio, some of these veterans began to organize. They founded something called the Order Sons of America. Unfortunately, the president, James Tafoya, uh, seemed to be a controlling person. Uh, they were fortunate to expand to Corpus and a few other small communities, but never got into the valley. Right around the mid-20s, a fellow named Alonso Perales, who was an orphan originally from Alice, Texas, but who had gone on to Washington, D.C., got educated and became a lawyer, returned to Texas. He studied these organizations and realized that a new organization was needed, that we needed an organization that would organize only Mexican-Americans, only men, and the middle class, and therefore they started to organize the LULAC. And LULAC was founded in Corpus Christi. Its first president was from Corpus, but Ben Garza of Corpus was not the true, true leader. The true leader was Alonso Perales of Alice, Texas. You touch on a lot of important history that we're not going to have a chance to delve in. As you're mentioning San Antonio, you mentioned Corpus, you mentioned the Valley, you mentioned Alice, Texas. But put your finger on why this organization that is today in its 90s, why did it develop in Texas? Well, a lot of different reasons. First of all, as I mentioned, the repression in Texas has probably been more severe. The KKK was particularly strong in Texas in the 1920s. Also in the 1910s, there had been several major examples of uh, anti-Mexican violence. And here specifically, I'm talking about uh, the racial violence collected, uh, connected to the Plan de San Diego that was uh, state-sanctioned violence by the Texas Rangers. Uh, luckily, in the late 1910s, J.T. Canales of Brownsville was the only uh, Mexican-American legislator and he filed 19 charges against the Texas Rangers and organized an investigation against them. And there was some reform after that. Texas has had that kind of extreme uh, racial violence. Uh, in addition, there was already a long history of mutual aid societies and labor unions in Texas. Uh, the mutual aid societies uh, were highly organized. Uh, in San Antonio, for example, around 1920, you would have had about 10,000 people who belonged to those. They also, of course, existed in Houston and small towns throughout Texas. So there was uh, uh, an underpinning to for organization. Uh, also, the Idad brothers from Laredo, uh, way back in 1911, they had already helped to organize an anti-lynching conference, and um, because lynching was also an issue in Texas as well as other places across the country. Uh, but quite severe in Texas. So, again, the repression was significant in Texas. The underlying uh, community organizations were there. There were emerging leaders who were fully bilingual for the first time, the Idad brothers, for example, Alonso Perales, J.T. Canales, uh, and all of those male leaders uh uh, many of them had fought in World War One, so there was an impetus to organize. You cover a lot of ground, and you mentioned certain entities, such as the Mutualistas, that still have some footprints here in Houston, but for the most part, 
are no longer large organizations. I bring it up just to compare how LULAC navigated those regional competitions or politics and groups to create something larger that has stood the test of time, but it did take some important navigation. One thing I want to point out, you mentioned a lot of the racism aimed towards our community at that time. Why was it important for LULAC to delineate between the civil rights efforts of U.S.-born Mexican-Americans who are citizens versus efforts that would be tied directly to Mexico. Say, for example, your Mutualista organizations had a lot of roots in Mexico. Uh, that's a very important question, and uh, there's an entire chapter uh, devoted in this book, No Mexicans, on the topic of the Harlingen Convention of 1927, in which the issue of whether Mexican immigrants should be allowed into the forthcoming organization or not was addressed. Now, the thinking of Perales and those who did join LULAC was that after 1924, the Border Patrol uh, had been created for the first time, and citizenship really started to make a difference. And they felt that using the strategy of U.S. citizenship, that they could argue, well, we are U.S. citizens, we have a right to have civil rights uh, specific to our U.S. citizenship, and we're going to utilize that uh, as as the main uh, dominant theme in arguing for for civil rights. Now, one of the things that we should note, as you have, is that the Mutualistas were mostly either Mexican organizations or very much included both Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. But the consul, the Mexican consulate, is also organizing Mexican-only organizations in the 1920s. Uh, again, Perales uh, and Canales, uh, other leaders, see that, again, arguing for U.S. citizenship, there was, they were able to navigate um, a call for justice using that, that theme. One of the things that we should remember, however, is that, for example, when LULAC was fighting against segregated schools, the existence of Mexican schools, never once did they say, hey, this is only for Mexican-Americans. So despite their pro-Americanism, at all times, almost all times, they were typically fighting for the Mexican immigrant population as well. And I'm glad you bring that up because taking out of historical context, some of these strategies don't make sense nowadays when people look back and say, well, hey, was LULAC anti-immigrant? You just answered the question that it was not. You also make an important distinction that the Border Patrol was created in 1924, which thereby pushes our community to have to define if they're citizens or not. And then all of a sudden you have to come up with different approaches for different groups. And you mentioned you've got the ambassadors of Mexico in one lane, you've got the Mutualistas in another lane, and now LULAC occupies a different lane, but each at that time are very important. And I would liken it to current discussions where folks want to identify as Latinx, Chicana, Chicano, Afro-Latino, and some folks still cling to Hispanic. So I think that's why your book is so important. On that note, you allude to one decision that might catch people off guard, but I think you can explain it in a historical perspective. LULAC voted to adopt English as its official language for the organization, even though the original rules were written in Spanish. Explain that for us. One of the things that this uh, emerging Mexican-American male middle class was very aware of is that they had to negotiate equality with very racist uh, people of the 1920s. And one of the ways that they could begin to do that, and the only language they could actually do that, was in English. Again, English was a tool of empowerment, and they realized that it was a necessary language. And so they advocated uh, for learning the English language, uh, but it was not used as an exclusionary tool. We, we need to understand that uh, most of the meetings, the documentation still shows are either held in Spanish uh, or bilingual. Again, it was about promoting language learning 
in our very much Spanish-dominant community. Uh, bilingualism uh, is power, and LULAC recognized that very early on. I think what's powerful about your work is that you bring that historical perspective to this organization that's almost 100 years old, and it's important to update that history. But we should also acknowledge that it is perhaps those same strategies that have kept that organization going. Perhaps that's one reason that there are people at work that want to erase our history. And again, I'll just simply point to Arizona Republican legislators who banned Mexican-American studies so that I want to point out that this is not a conspiracy theory. This actually happened. We're glad that our communities banded together to overturn that un-American racist law. However, do you think that that is one of the reasons that our history is not embraced fully in schools so that those contexts are not explained? And perhaps some people would like to see this divisiveness so that either LULAC is not acknowledged or there are perceived conflicts which really don't have any basis. You're correct. We have had another strong wave of anti-Mexican sentiment for the last 10 years or so in places like Arizona and in Texas. We've always had it there, but it, of course, is on the increase. And we are so happy that people like yourself and and others involved with Chicano studies have now gotten Mexican-American studies in the public schools. But the people who make the decisions, the uh, commissioners that make that decision, are mostly older people who themselves have never had any kind of Chicano studies. Um, So uh, (laughs) unfortunately, they have the power to make those decisions. But the the things are changing. Our our numbers are increasing and organized teachers and organized university professors have made a difference. Mexican-American history, uh, Mexican immigrant history will become more of the norm over time. You inspire us all the time. We're going to invite you back to talk about your book, Pioneer of Mexican-American Civil Rights, Alonso Esperales. You've alluded to him a little bit during this interview, but when that book comes out, we want you back. Tell us why you love researching and writing about our history so much. Because it's part of who I am, and uh, we need more history written. It's amazing that so much of our history and our identity has been kept from us. We now have the opportunity to to read, uh, write, and research, uh, and I believe in using history as a tool of empowerment. Words to live by. We've had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Cynthia E. Orozco. She's been sharing some insights into her book, No Mexicans, Women or Dogs Allowed, The Rise of the Mexican Civil Rights Movement. And we're looking forward to having her back for the launch of her next book, Pioneer of Mexican Civil Rights, Alonso S. Perales. Thank you so much for joining us and for all that you do, Dr. Orozco. Renaissance. This is Tony Diaz, and today we have a remote interview with a dear friend, part of our familia, Gris Munoz, who's calling in from El Paso. You know she's a frontera poet, performer, essayist, and fiction writer. She's the author of Cotliqui Girl. Her work has been published in The Rumpus, Bitch Media, Queen Mob's Tea House, and will be featured in the upcoming Third Women's Press inaugural anthology. Greece is currently commissioned to write the biography of acclaimed L.A. artist Fabian Deborah. She lives in El Paso, Texas. Her book is a moving collection of bilingual poetry and short stories rooted in her experience as a queer Chicana and based on defragmentation of cultural and personal memory. The poems and prose pieces examine themes of spirituality, identity, and the cultural loss of indigeneity for colonized peoples. The work also examines sexuality and the politicized body. It includes a foreword written by Luis Urberturia, 
and illustrations by Los Dos. And Luis Alberto Rios said she is a rock and roll curandera with a synchronistic religious heart tossing off chains <laughs> as she goes. She's a dear friend of our cause, the community, and us. So, Gris, felicitaciones on your book. Welcome to the air. Thank you so much, Tony. It really is an honor to be tuning in and talking to you about Squat Liquid Girl. I've known you many years now, possibly over a decade now. We both work on on the front, on the literature front. Yeah, you met me as a poet here in El Paso. I've been working on this book a long time. So I definitely want to give a shout out to all the Tejanas and all the border poets, absolutely, and all my friends that have been supporting me this whole time and helping me. Irene Lara Silva, who blended some of her words for my book and recently performed a little bit for my virtual release party. Thanks to everyone that helped me along the way. There's a lot. And Luis, can you imagine that foreword is gorgeous? I, you know, I just hope that the work measures up to those words, heavy words. The work definitely lives up to the kudos, to the praise, and you've given so much to us. It's wonderful that we can give back by supporting your work. And, you know, I had a pause because I'm like, oh, wait, is this, is this your first book? Because <laughs> you've changed the world. You've been involved at so many different levels. You know, we know you worked for the community. You've had a national impact. I didn't realize this was the first book. I figured you had several. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Why now? What does that represent? And what is that tension between being community organizer, supporting others, but also working on your own craft? Well, the first, first part of the question, I'm extremely meticulous about my work. And when I started off, um, and just to put in perspective, when I first came on the scene as a Chicana poet, I was 24 years old, and by that time I was already performing for Dolores Huerta, you know, other events and people that would come into town um, here in El Paso, um, and I'm 39 now. So I've been doing this for, for quite a while. The book took me that long to write, um, this whole time that, that I was putting poems out and I was performing. But so I started off as a performance poet and a street poet and a slam poet. There definitely is a difference or like how I felt as a performance poet and how I felt that I was treated a little bit by maybe the literary establishment or more established poets or more published poets. And maybe that, that could have just been my own perception at that time. I definitely had a lot of fire in me at that time. I just really wanted the work to be literature. I wanted to make literature. I, I, as much as I love being a performer and doing performance poetry, there was just something that I felt um, was unfinished about. I completely shifted into gear student mode and I went under and I studied literature at UTEP and I studied creative writing, immersed myself in literature, world literature. I just took it all in. And at the same time I was writing this book, it's just taken me a really long time to write some of these poems the earliest one I wrote was in 2006. And so there's really like this large viewpoint of this girl, the Guatliquid girl. In the beginning of the book, the first part of the book is maybe the younger pieces, um, be a run. And these are all true stories. These aren't stories that, you know, not that I have anything against fiction, um, but I really kind of at this point in my career um, have been saying that I don't feel that I have the luxury for fiction, I have too many stories that I, I need to, to tell. So these are all real stories that happened to me. Beer Run, Costco, um, even Highways. These are all my stories that I kept whittling away at and crafting away at and rewriting and rewriting and reworking uh, until they were smooth. And so it's just taken me a really long time to, to get going. But that makes sense because you cover a lot of ground. You're playing with forms that are often considered disparate. You're speaking for a lot of voices that have been overlooked. It is almost as if you, you had to create your own path. So, so that totally, totally makes sense. But let's go back to that a little more. Everything from the title to some of the other meanings, you're combining a lot of cultural references 
with potent language and imagery. Break down some of those influences for us to give people a little bit of a roadmap into to your aesthetic. There's actually a lot going on in this book. It's very loaded. And I will say that there's a lot going on inside of me and there's a lot going on inside of most of us or all of us. So I think the book is reflective of that too, that that maybe that manic, chaotic inside that we all have in regard to our journey into spirituality and colonization. Really, for me, I'm first generation. My mom is born in Mexico. She's born in this little town called Guadalupe Bravo, Chihuahua, which comes up in the book later. My mom's ombligo is buried um, in this little town that's a little bit outside of Juarez, that right now the, the whole place is just completely mired in violence. The way that I saw Guadalupe, there was there's different things going on here. All of the stories in the collection all involve motherhood in some way, whether they're me and my mom or later me being a single mom, just my experience with motherhood. And that's that's a part of how I connect Guadalupe. I'm also really, when I'm talking about Guadalupe, a part of me is really trying to process my relationship with Mexico or what I consider my mom's Mexico. There's a poem where I'm like talking to Mexico, apologizing for all the times when as a teenager, especially border teenagers, they go to Juarez and they, they party. There's just a huge culture of partying and club going in Juarez and all of that was right before the narco war started. And so there's definitely some aspect of inner guilt about how I presented myself to this grandmother country of mine. So there's different aspects of that. There's an opening poem called El Maíz. It's kind of like a funny little poem, but I say, Nací dentro de un carro Chevrolet, Magueyes en maceta en el U.S. of A. Mi tierra sagrada ni conoce mi cara, y el maíz se ha hecho cornflakes. So I'm always kind of playing with this idea of my Mexicanness and how I see Mexico and maybe how Mexico sees me and motherhood. That's kind of like where I get started. But see, I'm also speaking in two languages and I'm, I also have a little bit of a background or, or, or not extensive, but a background in uh, Mexican traditional medicine and going to Mexico and learning under uh, different abuelos and abuelas, uh, this culture and this spiritual uh, ideology that's that's passed down. Um, so there's definitely a lot going on with this book. Um, and I, I try to make it all natural, as natural as possible. Guadalupe, in a lot of ways, is, there's a poem where I say Guadalupe is inside of us. Guadalupe girl is an ancestral memory that I'm trying to recapture. Well, and I think necessarily so. Your book comes out at the right time for addressing the relief we need right now. We've met you during times of crises. We really appreciate you having read and thrilled audiences when the Libro Tafik and the Caravan went through El Paso the first time and then the second time. You've always held it down for the community. All of us love El Paso. The community is so strong and powerful and generous. So give us a little insights how, how the folks are doing in El Paso. So we're talking post-Arizona ban of Mexican-American studies. We're talking post-fight for Texas ethnic studies, which both were successfully implemented. So we all united to overturn the racist ban of ethnic studies in Arizona. We all united to get Mexican-American studies passed statewide. Post-slaughter in El Paso, and now post-COVID-19 epidemic, give us a little bit of insights into how you're holding up right now and how the community is holding up right now in El Paso. Gosh, well, there is so much, Tony. I mean, at this point, um, everyone is worried about the state of the children and the people, um, the families inside of these detention centers. As you know, we live in Texas, and Texas has some of the most draconian laws against life itself. Coming off of the terrible event that happened last year, kind of feel like, I don't want to say people were recovering, but I did feel a certain 
heaviness that was beginning to lift within the community, the activist community. The people here are resilient, Tony. They're still working. I know the Farm Worker Center is still trying to collect funds and working on just getting basic supplies and masks available to the farm workers. Border Network for Human Rights is also trying to collect funding and getting money together, actually, to hopefully give to some of these immigrant families that were denied a stimulus. The people here are are definitely as resilient as ever, and we are trying to work hard. This book, people keep telling me it came out at the right time, which is incredible because I waited so long. And and even Edward uh, Vidaure of Flower Song um, has just, you know, outright told me that, you know, I've I've been the book that took the longest to put out. And I was really meticulous about it. And so were the artists, Los Dos. They were extremely meticulous about this work. So it's just incredible that everything coincided together. And I've been receiving messages from mujeres and hermanos and people that come across this book. And they're just really enjoying it. They're enjoying how weird it is and how interesting uh, this girl, this girl's voice and her viewpoint is. We second that notion and hats off to Flower Song Books and Edward for for helping you get this voice out right now when we really need it. On that note, would you be kind enough to share some pieces with us and then maybe after the last one, give us a few more insights into the cultural references and some of your personal meanings behind your choices? Absolutely. And I'm going to be reading a piece that is special to me. And it's actually the story itself behind this poem is meant for my next work, not Fabian's uh, biography, which which is my next work, but my next personal work is a memoir slash novel called Sancha. You all are going to love Sancha. And there's a lot going on in Sancha too. It's got some family secrets and it's got my own story. And it has my own ceremony story, my travels or my experience with Mexican traditional medicine and being healed and coming across healers and being a healer, discovering that I'm a healer myself. And so Rocio Siwakoa, this poem, it goes into an experience that I had with one of the abuelas or one of the elders of Mexican traditional medicine, these indigenous elders who took their time, took some time and a little bit of their energy to help me along and help me along in my path. So this is Rocio Siwakoa. Dime. ¿Y a qué le temes tanto? The abuela asked. Her dark pupils focused on the parts of myself I could not bear to witness. Es que... Tengo miedo de que me voy a morir. I choked out, sobbing. No me quiero morir. Muchacha. Todos nos morimos, pero entiende, no es tu tiempo. Si te ibas a morir, ya te hubieras muerto. Tantos cuartos oscuros donde te metiste. ¡Mentiras! No temes a la muerte. Temes vivir. I'm going to be reading Man Flowers. And this is actually a really exciting piece for me. I just love this piece. And I don't know if you picked up on this at all, Tony, but um, I'm a romantic. I'm a romantic person. Um, the book, although it's it's erotic and it's passionate, it actually has no explicit sex scenes or it's just done in a way. And really, I think that's what's also, also subversive about it in these times, but I love Manflowers because it's such a romantic piece. And it's all true. Um, All these stories are true that I'm writing about. Manflowers. There was a house on the other side of our block. Ahí viven las manfloras, my mom would say, the disgust in her voice palpable. Si algún día te ofrecen comida, no la tomes. Whenever we had to walk by, she would grasp onto my hand even tighter and hurry me along. The house didn't really look any different from others on the block. It was white brick with a forest green trim 
and there was a great pebble walkway down the middle of the yard that led to the door. There was always so much noise and movement at our house. I liked riding my bike out of there, pedaling down our driveway and taking the sidewalk away from everyone. My mom wouldn't mind if I was gone unless I was gone too long. Once I was really going, I'd count the thin lines that separated the sidewalk into neat squares, feeling each bump under my tires. Las Manfloras. I was pretty sure I knew what it meant. Women who were like men, who lived together like lovers. I liked the word manflowers better. I'd say it in my head and think about the word, imagining what type of plant manflowers would be if they really existed. Following the curb of the sidewalk, I'd ride faster, picking up speed until I was close, and then I'd glide past their house. There was a gnarled wild blackberry tree in the yard, and at the base of it, a growth of succulents that were always freshly watered. Moras. The blackberries were called moras, and my parents thought they were a nuisance. My dad would say they were too bitter to eat, and complain how in the summer, the moras would hang fat and heavy until they stained the sidewalk because our neighbor Chewy was too lazy to look after his trees. My friend Rosie lived on that side of the block, and when I'd go over, her mom would let us ride our bikes anywhere on the street. We liked the moras. When we'd get to the manflower's house, we'd slow down and walk our bikes up their driveway. There would be purple stains all over the sidewalk and front yard and we'd gather the plumpest ones and pile them in our bike baskets for pretend dog food. We'd eat them instead, laughing and squeezing as we plunged them into our mouths, the juice sanguine and bitter. Sitting crouched, I'd look up and notice, notice Rosie's smiling face. It was spotted with moving shadows from leaves that in flashes blocked the sunlight. It wasn't until after I became a single mother that I learned about queer brown love, how it was the truest, like wrapping your arms around your very own skin in another body. The scent of body lotion and familiar. It was the first woman I loved who gently said, I think you have postpartum depression, sweetheart. No one else had noticed. My daughter was almost two. Anna. She'd stop by on Saturday mornings with groceries. You didn't have to, I'd say, but she knew we were probably a little hungry. I'd boil sweet potatoes as Belen sat and tapped plastic measuring cups against the kitchen tile. I'm on my way to see Cat Eyes. We met out dancing. I remember noticing her joy, how evident it was as she moved to the Gumbia as the live band was playing. Nervously, I had a couple of shots of tequila before catching her eye and holding my arm out, asking her to dance. I'd never had that feeling of a woman's body and her moving near me, the perfume off her shoulders, and my pure joy in being. I was wearing a pair of cowboy boots and even then had never been so graceful. Can I tell you something about cat eyes? I later found out she supported herself and her babies on her own, working part-time and taking on all the duties of a full-time nursing student. She only had one night, Saturday, off from her kids every two weeks. Even if she was completely spent, she made it a point to go dancing. The rest of her every days, she was up by 5 a.m. It's actually my birthday and I'm parked outside her apartment. She has two hours before she has to pick up her kids. I hadn't planned on doing anything for it, but when I'd mentioned it to her, she insisted on making lunch. Once inside, I sat at her kitchen table and watched her make salsa. She was roasting chiles and chopping onions next to a large granite molcajete. I feel special, I said, our eyes meeting. You are, Reina, she responded. Her apartment had plants everywhere, 
succulents and tiny repotted aloes arranged, lining every counter. I got up and leaned towards her, our arms wrapped around another, tightly like vines, violet mouths kissing. <sighs> I love that piece. <sighs> and I'm thinking of cat eyes. And love letter to Michoacan. This is also another beautiful person I got to spend time with, another lover. Kind of explain a little bit about this one later. <clears throat> Love letter to Michoacan. Where do you keep your gun? Never says he loves me, but he loves the revolution, my body brown and crossed. Urgent hours, unfolding maps and timing planes, the roses in the blue glass vase sit coral and tilted. Held up by the prayers of your mother and all of the women who know your anxious face lit up in fleeting moments, crowded airports, bus stops, their shawls draped around shoulders, bent on tiptoes for a last touch of your militant mouth. I waited then as I do now. Awake. A warrior waits for the right conditions. My silence, a siren, blaring, switching. We are living on borrowed time and marrow. He's packing duffel bags with equipment and ammunition. I'm pacing, don't know what language would reach him. Te vas a donde los cuerpos cuelgan de los árboles sagrados. Michoacán, por las noches me duelen los huesos. Despierto de espanto, navaja de muelles, solo tú me sacas lo malo, mi amor respaldado. Soldada, el que te casa, lo incendio, lo mato. Michoacán, solo tú entiendes, mi amor ominoso, my ominous love. Iztaccíhuatl, volcanic. Fluorescent gray ash, I swallow things up and turn them to stone. Whole cities, bridges and roads. Michoacan, I erupt all alone when you pack up and go. Thank you. Pose us out with some insider information so that all the folks who are listening and will be getting PhDs in Gris Muñoz studies will have <laughs> a little bit of a head start. So fill us in on some of those folks and, and some of those inspirations behind those pieces. The story of Rocio Siwakoa, like I said, is, is will be told, and it, and it will be told in a more complete work that I'm halfway done with called Sancha. And Sancha is going to explain my spiritual journey and leave it up to me to call a, a book about a spiritual journey, Sancha. But that's kind of like you get my sense of humor there. Rocio Siwakoat was actually, well, she was a woman that I met while I was in Mexico. And um, she was actually one of Comandanta Ramona's women. There's, you know, so much more to, to who she was. But she was one of the women that was with Ramona in the jungle. And she was there the whole time as they hid from everybody, basically. And finally, when Comandante Ramona got sick and um, needed medical attention. So she has this incredible story. And I don't even know how I ended up um, meeting her, but I did. And she loved me. And she helped me. And she helped heal me. And so there, there's a lot that goes on the story and, and, our, and our conversation about, I told her that, that I didn't think I was a guerrera, which as you know, Tony, you know, for years I was out performing and I'd wear Easy LN shirts and I'm performing and being a guerrera. But when I got to Mexico and I humbled myself and I was in the, the presence of these women, these real, real guerreras, I told her, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I'm a guerrera. She looked at me and she said, from this moment on, 
you are. And she gave me a healing. And it, it's an incredible story. And it's an intense story. Quan Liquid Girl, the book, Nasede, you know, um, all of these experiences, even though they're not fully um, verbalized in the book, the story of Rocio Siwakoa, you get, you know, one of her most potent lines towards me. And I've noticed that people that read that poem and it hits them, it's the right people. It's the people that are meant to, to hear that. There's just this fascination that we have with, with death. And sometimes we are afraid to meet our own destinies so much that even death seems easier than meeting what it takes to to heal those scars and meet that destiny. And really, that's what this book is about. Um, there's a great sense of destiny in this girl, in this squat liquid girl that you meet in the beginning, and she's kind of confused and she's kind of silly, but she's um, learning how to work with her fears. And by the end, there's just a different voice that, that comes out. And um, so be on the lookout for Sansha that's coming up, www.flowersongbooks.com. Dot com. You can find um, Guadalupe Girl there. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. You can find it pretty much any place that, that books are being sold. Or It would be really great if you could request it from an independent bookstore in your city. That would be awesome. It's been wonderful to touch base with our dear friend, our familia, Gris Muñoz, celebrating her collection, Guadalupe Girl. And we're looking forward to more of a work. Un abrazo grande and continued success. Thank you so much, Tony. We want to thank our crew that's putting this show together. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixed this show remotely. Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, Lori Flores, Stefano Cabeza, and Al Castillo. Si te metes tú conmigo, más vale que no lo intentes. Revolución de mente. Biri, 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 bam, bam. Tú no vas a acabar con mi power mexicano. Biri, 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 bam, bam. Tú no, tú no, tú no, tú no. Biri, 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 bam, bam. Tú no vas a acabar con mi power mexicano. Biri, 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 bam, bam. Tú no, tú no, tú no. Hey, hey. By joining KPFT's Sustainer Program this hour, you can support your local non-commercial station and help KPFT reduce its pledge drives. Rather than giving a yearly gift, sustainers give a monthly donation that continues as long as you want. Giving $5, 20 100 or more monthly helps change the way KPFT works. Sustainers help us meet our operating expenses without days and days of on-air fundraising. That means less pledge drive, more efficiency, and greater stability for KPFT, regardless of the time of year. Again, visit kpft.org to make a difference today. This is 90.1 KPFT Houston, kpft.org worldwide. Hi, my name is Alfonso Rivera, and I invite you to listen every Tuesday night from 10 to 11, the best Latino radio show in Houston, Son Pacifica. Do you like trova, folkloric music, rock and español? How about Afroantillano rhythm, tango, and the best of the popular music? Then listen to us.